Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Hey there, elephant eaters. Emily here. I come to you with some unfortunate news. Here we are at the payoff of War and Peace, and Ian and Megan and I have been having so much fun savoring the gorgeous endings to the stories of Pierre and Natasha and Maria and Nikolai. But here at the very end, we find ourselves smack in the middle of Center for Lit's spring travel season, which hasn't really meant anything for the last two years, but this year our schedule has started to ramp back up to the old standard, and it caught us all a little off guard. We thought we were going to be able to pull off our original plan, but we suddenly find ourselves scattered to the four winds for the next two weeks, with no ability to sit down at the same time to record. At one point, we were actually all three of us in different states. So, sadly, we're going to have to make a bit of an adjustment to the schedule for the end of War and Peace. Our next official episode, which is the recap to Volume 4, will not release until May 25th. And we'll readjust the schedule on the website to reflect the changes that will cause going forward. We feel horrible about this interruption, especially when things were getting so good. So, to make it up to you, we're releasing a special bonus episode featuring another of Tolstoy's great classics, The Death of Ivan Illich. Adam and Missy teach it in their world literature class, and they've given us permission to share a good portion of that conversation here with you. We hope you enjoy it. Stay tuned in the days ahead for details concerning the end of War and Peace and an announcement about what our next elephant will be. And we promise we'll be back soon. Until then, das Vidanya. And without further ado, we should probably just dive in. It's Leo Tolstoy this time around, The Death of Ivan Illich, which is one of Tolstoy's most famous short stories or novellas, I guess you'd say. Maybe just short story, right, Mrs. A? Yeah, I think so. Uh, however, it's a great introduction, I think, to uh, Tolstoy in general. And we're hoping that after a discussion of Death of Ivan Illich, you will be, your appetites will be whetted to go and explore the great Russian author a little bit more deeply in some of his longer works, maybe uh, War and Peace even, which is 42,000 pages long. But The Death of Ivan Illich does give a really good introduction to Tolstoy and touches on some of his most uh, cherished themes. I saw in the chat box that there was some um, conversation about how um, dark and depressing, how cynical you felt after reading it. Now, that's an interesting place to start our conversation, the effect that this story had on you. It is about death, right? So this is something that we will dive into as we go along. I, I will say this before we turn it over to Mrs. A and we start talking about uh, the literary elements of this story that um, I just forgot what I was going to say. Oh, no, I remembered. Um, <laughs> Leo Tolstoy is considered by many to be the greatest novelist who ever lived. And his novel, War and Peace, his novel, Anna Karenina, and some of his other novels are considered by many to be the greatest novels ever written. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know if you guys have enough experience to be able to judge this or not. My guess is that you probably don't. But take our word for it. Tolstoy is certainly a significant novelist. And if literary reading is what we're trying to learn in this class, we could do no better than to tackle Tolstoy 
at least once. So let's go ahead and give it a try, shall we? The death of Ivan Illich. Mrs. A, where do we even begin? Well, I think we should begin with a little information about Tolstoy himself today. I was noticing in the chat box that some of you um, thought that it was pretty depressing and wished that there were a few more um, uplifting themes, a little more Christianity in the, the story itself. And um, I challenge you to withhold judgment until we've plotted the story on a plot chart where that is concerned. So let me just give you a little information about who this, this author was. Um, so Mr. A already mentioned um, that he was a 19th century author and uh, that he wrote big tomes, right? Uh, he wrote, he was Russian and he wrote in the 19th century, 1828 to 1910. Uh, he was nominated for the Nobel Prize in Literature every year from 1901 to 1906. And also incidentally for the Nobel Peace Prize, but he never won that either. Um, which if any of you are aspiring, aspiring authors, um, even knowing that he's famous because of his war and peace, um, that should really encourage you. <laughs> you don't have to win. Sometimes even the best of authors don't win prizes. <laughs> okay. He, he's known for literary realism, which we've looked at before. Um, reality as it truly is, real life in books, a view of life dealing only with reality. Okay. Yeah, you guys are, are talking around it. Absolutely. The realists were interested in depicting life as they really, as they thought it really was. So we get a lot of local dialect, um, a lot of emphasis on local color and an emphasis on um, the, 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 the real functioning daily life, the mundane, right? There's a focus on the mundane. Okay. So he was a literary realist. Uh, he was very influenced by a man named Schopenhauer who taught that ascetic morality was the way to go. That is that self-denial is a good, that it causes what he said, a relative nothingness that is not to be feared. And this kind of influenced Tolstoy, even as he came to Christianity, his, his understanding of Christianity was really um, predicated on his understanding that of the greatest commandment, let's say it that way, his understanding of the greatest commandment. You guys know what that was? That you love the Lord, your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and that you love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said that all of the law and the prophets hang on those two admonitions, love the Lord, your God, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you think about it, loving your neighbor as yourself really does require a kind of self-denial, right? It requires looking outside of yourself, not just into yourself and thinking about the other person, which I don't know about you, but I find very difficult. Mm. Most of us are really um, fixated on ourselves, on our feelings, on our comfort, on, on us. And we have a really difficult time even seeing the other person, let alone living in light of that other person and um, taking care of them. Right. And this was what he wrote a lot about. He wanted to depict the human condition. And as he saw it, he saw the law of God as summarized in loving God and neighbor as the self and all of the obstacles to doing that thing, which he, which if we don't do, he thinks that makes us miserable, right? That all the misery in life comes from denying the truth of our real situation 
and turning inward on self and not taking care uh, to love the people around us, which is what we're really here for, loving God and loving neighbor. This is Leo Tolstoy. And all of his works really do talk about that idea to one degree or another, especially this one, okay? Um, He confessed Christianity uh, in a work that he entitled What I Believe, and that I think he wrote that in 1884. So if you're interested in reading more about what Tolstoy believed, um, you can find it out there. Are there other things we need to say about him, Mr. A, before we? Um, Rich, noble, uh, he kind of like almost a prince, not quite as a Aristocratic. Yeah, he was an aristocrat. So a wealthy, privileged aristocrat in 19th century Russia before the Russian Revolution. Um, uh, And as you mentioned, famous in his own lifetime, uh, as the greatest author, the greatest novelist in the world. Uh, I think that thing, and then his his concern with a, a version of Christian morality that he was really interested in are probably the most important things to note. If you're talking about style and influence, another thing about Tolstoy that's kind of good to keep in mind is that he, he's justly famous for um, interior characterization. Yes. Justly famous for describing a man or even a woman's thoughts uh, one of his characters describing their thoughts and their internal motivations so powerfully and so well that readers um, imagine themselves in the role of the characters. And readers often, as Mrs. A and I have done many times, look up from the middle of a passage and say, how does he know mm-hmm. uh, what makes people tick? Especially like um, reading Anna Karenina, his his greatest works are uh, War and Peace and Anna Karenina. And um when I read Anna Karenina, I thought he's writing about a woman and as though he were that woman, he's, he's doing an interior monologue of what she's thinking, what she's feeling, what, you know, and you think that a woman wrote it. You think, how does he know that? How could he possibly have climbed inside a woman's skin and and known what makes her tick? That's incredible. But um, that's what he's known for. Okay. Someone, I can't remember the author that said that Tolstoy doesn't, uh, he doesn't write stories. He writes life. It was Dostoevsky who was, was it no, Dostoevsky? who was no friend. Yeah. Okay. Dostoevsky said that about him, a contemporary. So anyway, I, I think that's absolutely true. And I think that comes through very clearly in this short piece that we've read for this week. Okay. I think that's probably all that we need to talk about uh, in terms of his biographical information. Uh, did I miss anything? No. I. Did you give his dates? Yeah, I did. It was 1828 to 1910 are his dates. And Dates of his great works, Um, he publishes War and Peace in 1869, then Anna Karenina in 1877, I think. I can't tell if that's in seven or nine. And then um, uh, The Death of Ivan Ilyich in 1886. So this is a later work. And this is two years after he wrote that short essay, What I Believe that confessed his own understanding of Christianity and pacifism and embracing poverty and asceticism, all that sort of thing. Uh, By the way, if you think about the fact that he was an aristocrat, rather wealthy, and he embraced poverty, he was also married, right? Um, This had an effect on the people around him. And um, his understanding of Christianity got narrower and narrower as he got older until eventually he wasn't really sure he could take communion with his wife. So um, he's got a pretty interesting biography if you're ever interested in checking it out. But that's not really our game today. Our our game is this particular story, the death 
of Ivan Ilyich or Ivan Ilyich, whatever you'd like to say is fine. I see Ivan Ilyich and you can too, if you want. Okay. Um, I think in order to discuss and to follow even just the names in the story, we should talk a little bit about patronymics. Um, did you guys notice that everybody has more than one name and that it gets a little confusing? It's one of the the hardest things about reading the Russians is figuring out who in the world they're talking about because everybody has like three or four names, right? They've got a given name, they've got a surname, and then they've got this patronymic and then sometimes even a nickname, okay? <laughs> um, what about patronymics? Um, when we talk about patro, we're talking about fathers, right? And Russians distinguished um, in their names who their fathers were. So the Russian middle name, is taken from the father's first name. Um, the suffix of the name corresponds to gender. So the male Ovich or Evich and the female Avna or Evna, okay, are the little suffixes. Okay, so for example, Praskavya Feodorovna, that's Ivan's shallow wife, right? Um, Avna means that it's a woman, but Fyodor was her father. Right. What's the other female uh, suffix besides Avna? Evna. Evna. Yeah. Avna or Evna for the women. Ovich or Evich for the men. Okay. That's probably all we need to, to discuss in order for you to be able to follow along and figure out who's being discussed. Okay. Um, where should we begin with the story proper, Mr. A? Well, uh, I think probably I mean, it's very plot driven. We begin uh, this story at a funeral, which is crazy because we begin the story at the protagonist's funeral. Yeah, that's kind so of we, turning the world on its head. Isn't we it? actually know from the very beginning of this story that the protagonist is dead. So the whole story really comes to us in retrospect. It's a retrospective of this dead guy's life, which makes me think, I mean, if it makes me think that it would be kind of fun to get into this story um, via plot, because it begins with a, with a crazy plot twist. Okay. So we could do that if you want. Let's do it. All right. Um, so if we're going to start with plot, we need to know who the main character is and what he wants. Who is our main character? Obviously everyone says it's Ivan Illich. Okay. okay. And who is he? Who is Ivan Illich? Besides dead. <laughs> He's a dead guy who when he was alive, was what? Okay, good. He's a he's a prosecutor in a court. He's a government functionary. Magistrate, practicer of law. <clears throat> That's true. That's right. He's a professional, a lawyer. Where does he belong? He lives in Russian society at that time. It's very stratified. Where does he belong in, in the, uh, the castes? Okay. Upper middle class. That's right, Isaac. Good. He's upper middle class. Um, what's his attitude towards wealth, money, things? He wants it. <laughs> he likes it. He wants it. Yeah. What does he think is the, the most important thing in life? Isabel says he wants to get higher in social status. Yeah. Social standing is very important status. to him, right? As okay. a matter of fact, his whole retrospective on his life is a, is a story of how he got where he got and it's how about he climbing, wished right? he were climbing higher, right? Okay. And, um, and the, how does he die? Floating kidney. He has some sort of cancer. internal, intestinal, internal disease, right? He dies in agonizing pain, but what causes this as far as he knows? 
He bumped his side. Yeah. He had a, a minor accident while he was hanging curtains um, to redecorate their home, right? And he's really into this because, again, with the pretense, right? He's kind of killing it out there and he's making a lot of money and he's redoing his home. And, you know, so he has this little accident and then things get worse and worse and worse until finally he dies in agonizing pain, as far as we know. What a depressing story. Why are we reading this story? There's got to be more to it than this, right? Okay. What does he want? Why can't he have it? We, we say he wants social standing. He wants, quote unquote, success. I think we can be more specific. What does he want? Is he the only one that wants social standing and success? No. Who else does? A pleasant life. Good is it. He mm -hmm. wants happiness. He wants a pleasant life. Mm -hmm. All his colleagues want exactly the same thing. His wife wants exactly the same. Everybody wants this, right? So why is so singular here? He wants to live a normal life, not a good life. Okay. And Veronica, tell me what you mean by that. An easy life with no strife or conflict. Me too. How about you? An easy life with no strife or conflict. I kind of, if, if Yvonne lived today or if Ivan lived today, I, I can imagine him, I can imagine him striving for the life of the rich and the famous. I can imagine him um, wanting ease in all things and pouring over pottery barn catalogs in order to see what everybody's doing with their space and then striving to obtain all of the things that make a picture perfect home or a picture perfect world for himself right? He's led by what everybody else is doing. He seems to avoid conflict at all costs. He escapes his disgruntled wife by embracing his work. Yep. That's right. Isabel. Good Veronica. Good comment there. Focused on how he looks from the outside, even when he's considering his own happiness. Yeah. Actually, those two yeah. things maybe are, are sort of the same, right? How he looks from the outside is what he thinks amounts to his own happiness. Right? Okay. So if we're going to, if we're trying to, to tighten up our understanding of what it is that he wants, um, can we, can we be specific? Can we say um, if Ivan wants the ideal and the ideal is um, a kind of of his own invention? He's decided the things that make an individual happy and he's taken his cues from the people around him who are as blind as he is, right? It's like the blind leading the blind. And so he's pursuing those things blindly. If I were going to round out a discussion of Ivan as a human being, like what makes him tick? What is his problem? I would probably begin with the fact that all of his um, desires are, are pretty unexamined, right? Mm. His understanding of the good life as being a life with no strife, no struggle, um, ease, wealth, belongings, respect, and all those things that he's just imbibed that in the world. And it's completely unexamined. The idea that he himself is the center of the world seems to be pretty strongly at the heart of that, all of his pursuits, right? I think it's really important to say that these priorities are unexamined. Yeah, I think that might be one of the most fundamental elements of the conflict 
in the story is that for his entire life, he's been pursuing things to the extent that he's pursued anything at all without really examining them. I think C.S. Lewis would say that this man is driven by his guts, which makes his death kind of interesting. But um, yeah, that he lives by his belly as opposed to being governed by his 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 uh, intellect or his um, reason, right? Not a lot of reason. Okay, what kind of conflicts does this represent? Man versus what? Well, we've got to say, why can't he have these things? He wants happiness. He wants the ideal. He wants ease. He wants respect. Why can't a, he have these things? A couple of different people have said man versus society. Let's talk about that for a second. Uh, if it's a man versus society conflict, then the the real story, think, think with me here, is about whether Ivan will or will not get all of the things that he wants from society, ease, wealth, possessions, respect, right? And then we could say that the answer to the story's question is not really because he dies before he really has him. We find out right in the first chapter, right? That nobody really respects him. They're all actually, they're at the funeral because why? Why is everyone at the funeral? Does anybody remember? Free food. And also they want his post. Exactly. It's so, proper. Yeah, I like that. Ashley, it's exactly right. It's it's social convention. Right. They have so, to. Nobody wants to be there. So has has Ivan gotten the thing that he desires from society in this man versus society conflict? No. However, I think that's probably just a surface conflict in this story. It wouldn't be one of the great short stories of all time if it was a story of a guy that was trying to get respect from society and eventually failed. The man versus something else conflict, I think, is a little bit deeper. When Mrs. A suggested before that, the, that his, his goals and his priorities are unexamined, He's never even, he hasn't even sat down to consider whether these are the right priorities or whether they're good priorities. This is a more fundamental conflict. And what, what kind of conflict is that? Isaac says, man versus self, along with some other people. Certainly, there's a man versus self component to it, right? It's, mm -hmm. This story is in part about a guy coming to a place where he examines his own life. He examines his own priorities and passes some sort of judgment on them. That's a totally different, think about it, right? That's a totally different conflict than will a guy earn the respect of his peers? Will a guy come to see that his desire for respect is either good or bad? Yeah, that maybe his desires are misguided, that he has the wrong ones. Right. Right. That his desire for ease is misguided. Uh, I, as I look at my notes um, from this story, you know, and in, in, in answering the question, what is it that Ivan wants? Um, quotes from the text are not to suffer, to live nicely, pleasantly, uh, to be justified in his past life. He spends a lot of time um, thinking about things that he's done in the past and trying to justify himself, to validate his decisions, his choices, his behavior. Maybe he needs some sort of absolution. He's trying to discover the meaning of it all. Um, what is this? Why? It can't be. Can it be that life is so meaningless and vile, he says? Then why die suffering? Something's not right. Um, right? This is page 84 in my text. I don't know about yours. Um, why? What for all this horror, he says? These are the things that that uh, that Ivan wants. The initial thing he wants is uh, what everybody else wants, the good life, right? And we can say, what kind of a conflict is this? 
man versus, and I think those of you who say self are, are really right because in order to have a good life, you have to know what it is. And he never asks. But the story is the story of him coming to ask these questions, right? As Mrs. A just read, eventually he starts saying, wait a minute, something isn't right. Because a good life from his perception at the beginning of the story is what? Ease, wealth, respect, uh, egocentrism, right? These things are the good life. Why can't he have them? Well, A, there's this wife of his, and she seems to make matters worse for him. Uh, B, there are these children of his. See, there are these colleagues of his, right? That, that seem to keep him from getting the things that he wants. Um, there's this illness of his, this pain in his side. All of these things interrupt this thing that he thinks is supposed to be, that the world is really about pleasantness and ease and that that's the whole goal of life is self-realization, right? And this is what he's pursuing. Why can't he have it? Well, because it doesn't seem like the world is lined up for that. There's this suffering that comes in all these different uh, guises for him that force him to uh, pay attention. Eventually, that screams so loudly at him that he cannot look away. Okay. So you could say, as Mrs. A is alluding to this, that his that the underlying conflict, at least one of them, is a man versus man conflict, the obstacle to his own to self-examination, to seeing clearly what his priorities are and where they've come from, is his own. What, what could you say? His own blindness, his own deafness. Well, that'd be man versus self, right? Yeah, that's what I was man saying. Self. Um, the man versus man conflicts, I think, are perceived on his part. He sees everybody around him that keeps him from the ease and the comfort that he wants as uh, an obstacle. And so he perceives a man versus man issue, for example, with his wife, right? Is that the real problem? Is his wife really the problem? You can see Tolstoy pushing his readers to examine with Ivan his presuppositions. He's never examined his presuppositions. And you can hear Tolstoy saying, have you? What's your greatest good? Isabel calls our attention to that place where, is it um, Gershon or whatever his name is, kisses his hand? His son. Yeah. Oh, his son, right. Kisses his, his hand. And he realizes that his life is backwards. Mm -hmm. It's moments like that that show us that Ivan is coming around to seeing himself clearly overcoming this man versus self conflict, right? But somebody actually said a few minutes ago that this is a man versus God. I think it was Ellery. I vote for man versus God, Ellery uh -huh. said. Okay, let's talk about the, the man versus God. We've talked about the way that this could be a man versus self-conflict, the way it could be man versus man, and even the way that man versus society comes into this because um, society is complicit in his understanding of reality. He's basically taken his cue from everyone else. It seems like everybody in the story feels just like him. And that really is, um, I think, the significant part of where Tolstoy begins there at that funeral. Um, it's not just that we see that the respect he wanted from his peers is lacking. I mean, they go and it's perfunctory. Nobody really is sorry that he's gone. They just are really glad that they're still alive. Um, it's interesting when he talks about that, he calls that the lie. Do you guys remember? What is the lie that Ivan references? <clears throat> in the super, superficial society that's intent on pursuing vanity and distractions, just like he is, and they do all this to propagate the lie. On page 71 in my text, it's described again. The main torment for Ivan Ilyich was the lie. That lie, for some reason, acknowledged by everyone that he was merely ill 
and not dying and that he needed only to keep calm and be treated. And then something very good would come of it. While he knew that whatever they did, nothing would come of it except still more tormenting suffering and death. And he was tormented by that lie, tormented that no one wanted to acknowledge what they all knew and he knew, but wanted to lie to him about his terrible situation and wanted him and even forced him to participate in that lie, the lie, this lie perpetrated upon him on the eve of his death, the lie that must needs reduce the dreadful, solemn act of his death to the level of all their visits, curtains, sturgeon dinners was terribly tormenting for Ivan. And strangely, many times as they were performing their tricks over him, he was a hair's breadth from shouting at them, stop lying. You know, and I know that I'm dying. So at least stop lying. But he never had the courage to do it. The dreadful, terrible act of his dying, he saw, was reduced by all those around him to the level of an accidental unpleasantness, partly an indecency, something like dealing with a man who comes into a drawing room spreading a bad smell. In the very name, in the name of that very decency, he had served all his life. He saw that no one would feel sorry for him because no one even wanted to understand his situation. Why didn't they want to understand his situation? Well, because they're subject to it themselves. Because it's also their situation, right? It's the lie. The lie. Then in chapter eight, we get the um, isolation that he experiences and the anguish that it causes and his response to it, which is just as self-absorbed as he's always been. The loneliness is the worst part, right? On page 78, always the pain, always the pain, always the anguish, always one and the same thing. Being alone is a horrible anguish. He wants to call someone, but he knows beforehand that with others, it's still worse. The loneliness is the worst part. Okay. And then finally, in the middle of his suffering, Ivan begins to wonder why. Chapter nine, what is it all for? And this thing, which is terrible for him, is being accomplished with suffering. And he is afraid. And yet he wants to fall through and he struggles and he helps. And then suddenly he lost hold and fell and came to his senses. The same garrison is sitting at the foot of the bed, dozing calmly and patiently. And he is lying with his emaciated legs and stockings placed on garrison's shoulders. The same candle with its shade and the same unceasing pain. Go away, garrison, he whispered. Never mind, I'll stay, sir. No, go away. He took his legs down, lay sideways on his arm and felt sorry for himself. He waited only until Garrison went to the next room and then stopped holding himself back and wept like a child. He wept over his helplessness, over his terrible loneliness, over the cruelty of people, over the cruelty of God, over the absence of God. Why have you done all this? This is a direct address to God, right? Why have you brought me here? Why do you torment me so visibly? so terribly. He did not expect an answer and wept that there was not and could not be an answer. The pain rose up again, but he did not stir, did not call out. He kept saying to himself, well, go on, beat me. But what for? What have I done to you? What for? So how does he perceive the pain? As an assault by God. As God's assault on him, right? Then he quieted down, not only stopped weeping, but stopped breathing and became all attention. 
It was as if he were listening not to a voice that spoke in sounds, but to the voice of his soul, to the course of thoughts arising in him. Aha. Uh-huh. This is interesting. He's now self-aware. He's watching himself think now. Yeah, he's watching something now. Somebody uh, said earlier in the chat box that this uh, story kind of reminded them of C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces. Were you thinking of this moment? This is really similar to Oral's moment when she hears her own voice reading the scroll over and over and over again and looks down and sees that it's a tiny little piece of scribbly, mean paper, mm-hmm. right? He hears his own voice questioning God. It also seems to me very much like Flannery O'Connor's story, Revelation, when Mrs. Turpin yells out at God, who do you think you are? And hears her own voice coming back across the field at her. Who do you think you are? (laughs) Seems really similar. It was as if he were listening, not to a voice that spoke in sounds, but to the voice of his soul, to the course of thoughts arising in him. What do you want? was the first clear idea expressible in words that he heard. What do you want? What do you want? He repeated to himself, what? Not to suffer, to live, he replied. And again, he gave himself entirely to such intense attention that even the pain did not distract him. To live. To live how? Asked the voice of his soul. Yes, to live as I lived before, nicely, pleasantly. As you lived before, nicely and pleasantly, asked the voice. And he started to go over in his imagination the best moments of his pleasant life. But strange thing, all those best moments of his pleasant life seemed now not at all as they had seemed then. All except for his first memories of childhood. There in childhood, there'd been something really pleasant, which one could live with if it came back. But the man who had experienced that pleasure was no more, was no more. It was as if the memory was about someone else. And as soon as that began, the result of which was he, the Ivan Ilyich of today, all that had then seemed like joys melted away and turned into something worthless and often vile. And the further from childhood, the closer to the present, the more worthless and dubious were those joys. It began with law school and then his marriage and the dissembling and this deadly service and these worries about money and the further, the deadlier, as if I was going steadily downhill while imagining I was going up. How about that? As if I were going steadily downhill while imagining I was going up. And so it was. In public opinion, I was going uphill. And exactly to that extent, life was slipping away from under me. And now that's it. So die. But what is this? Why? It can't be. Can it be that life is so meaningless and vile? And if it is indeed so vile and meaningless, then why die? And die suffering. Something's not right. Something's not right. Maybe I did not live as I should have, would suddenly come into his head. But how not? If I did everything one ought to do, he would say to himself, and at once drive this sole solution to the whole riddle of life and death away from him as something completely impossible. What do you want now then? To live? To live how? To live as you live in court? When the usher proclaims court is in session, court is in session, court is in session, he repeated to himself. Isn't that interesting? What is he doing in all of this? As he's asking these these questions, this might be the first time in his life he's actually asked these questions. He's kind of watching himself think. Isn't this interesting? This whole chapter is like a Socratic dialogue, right? Absolutely. He's watching himself think. And what are the answers that he's getting? Well, 
maybe I did not live as I should have. Push that away. What do you want then? To live as you lived in court when the usher proclaims court is in session? That's an intro. What do you think he means by that? To live as you lived in court when the usher proclaimed court is in session. What does that suggest? To live by your accumulated acts or your accumulated possessions. To live by your power. To, to live self-justifying. To maybe. justify yourself. I mean, he's sort of in the courtroom right in this moment, isn't he? Here is that court, he says. Yeah. But I'm not guilty, he cried out angrily. What for? And he stopped weeping and turning his face to the wall, began to think about one and the same thing. Why? What for? All this horror. But how much, however much he thought, he found no answer. And when it occurred to him, as it often did, that it was all happening because he had not lived right, he at once recalled all the correctness of his life and drove this strange thought away. He's wrestling, wrestling with God and wrestling with himself. He still doesn't want to see. He's still complicit in the lie that he should be in charge, that his life is pleasant and correct, that he is pleasant and correct, that he's done everything right. And the inner voice keeps saying, but have you, but have you? And he keeps self-justifying. So at this point, at least, I think you're right. We have to say that the rising action is still rising. We haven't come to any kind of climactic moment yet, have we? Another two weeks went by. Ivan no longer got up from the sofa. He didn't want to lie in bed. And so he would lay on the sofa and lying almost always face to the wall. He suffered all alone, the same insoluble suffering and thought all alone, the same insoluble thought. What is this? Can it be true that it is death? And an inner voice replied, yes, it's true. Why these torments? And the voice replied, just so for no reason beyond and besides that there was nothing. From the very beginning of his illness, from the time when Ivan first went to the, to the doctor, his life had divided into two opposite states of mind. There's despair and the expectation of an incomprehensible and terrible death. Now there was hope in the interest-filled process of observing the functioning of his body. So the despair and the observation of his body. And solitude. It's really interesting. The, the bulk of this rising action of the story is an observation of suffering. It's action on the inner psyche of the individual. How would you characterize that? If this is a study of the nature of suffering, what is the nature of suffering according to Tolstoy's depiction? Let's make it easier. Is it a good or an evil? Well, so far in Ivan's story, it's it's a senseless evil. He's calling it a senseless evil. Death is a senseless evil. How does Tolstoy depict it? Does he depict it as a senseless evil? Yeah, right, Isabel. Yeah, we can kind of begin to see that it's, it's happening even now, performing a chapter function, 11, right? isn't it? It's performing a function in the story. It's making Ivan ask the, the significant questions that he's never asked one day in his life. That clearly he would never have asked had he ever, never been in pain. I mean, when we looked at the, the first line of, I think it was chapter two um, that started us on the rising action. The past history of Ivan Ilyich's life was most simple and ordinary and most terrible. We asked the question, what made his history terrible? He was in it. <laughs> he was in it. Yeah, maybe. And maybe the thing that made his history terrible 
we said at the time is that it was simple. And what, what was the other word? Normal. It was simple and normal. Unexamined is what unexamined. he suggested. Yeah. yeah. He lived an unexamined life and he got it all wrong. Yeah. He never asked the important questions. He never wrestled with himself about his real place in the universe. So the in the translation that I had up on the, by the way, this is all in Russian, right? So you're reading an English translation. In the one that I had up on the screen while Mrs. A was reading, he keeps saying, what is it for? What is it for? What is the it that he's talking about? Well, the it is, is death and pain and suffering. But the fact that he's asking the question, that is the question that he never asked up until now. That is a, the Tolstoy suggesting that is one mark of a life well lived, not to be selfless instead of selfish and loving instead of hateful, but to be asking this question instead question. of not asking, right? Well, yeah. And I think asking the question is what the, this is why he wrote the story. Yeah, exactly. He's not writing the story for Ivan. He creates Ivan a character in order to depict in every man and suggest to everyone in the room from page one, all the way to the end that you are Ivan. Have you asked the question? And what is it for? And also I just want to emphasize, and I see the chat box going in one particular direction that it's very easy to say, Ivan lived his life wrong. And the point of this story is for you to live your life right. So don't just get a job because it's a selfish goal. Uh, make sure to love your wife. Be and be nice sure to not kids. to fall and bump your side. Yeah. No, 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 no. The problem with, I, with Ivan's life is that he never asked the question, what's it for? What's it for? And this is what Tolstoy wants you to do. Forget your job, get a job or don't get a job, but ask the question, what's it for? There's no explanation. Torment, death, what for? What's it for? So Ivan's winning right now as he's asking this question. I can hear him. He's asking, what's all the suffering for? He's asking, um, why am I dying? What's the death for? And I think he's also asking, what's life for? Absolutely. Because in retrospect, his life looks pretty vain. Yeah. Right? He asked it too late. I don't know, Andrea. Maybe. Maybe he asked it too late. Maybe he asked it at the same time every man asks it. How frequently do you get up in the morning and say out loud, what's it for? What's this life for today? Hmm. Or when something goes wrong, right? It goes wrong. And instead of raging against the wrongness of the thing and feeling like you shouldn't be interrupted by this wrong thing, whether it's a, uh, an assignment that's going to put you out a task that your parents asked you to do that's going to cause you some suffering one way or another, interrupt your perfect plans for your perfect day and your perfect world, whether it be something very small or something very large, a bad diagnosis, whatever. I think every man's response to that sort of thing is, what? What do you mean? What's it for? Right? And it can be a small thing or it can be a large thing. It can be a permanent thing like a, um, the beginning of death or it can be a little death. Life is full of little deaths. And our response to these little deaths that we call suffering is always, ah, what do you mean? This is not how it's supposed to be, right? At least that's true. I'm talking about myself here. This is true in my own situation. What's it for? And I see Tolstoy trying to get his reader to ask the question out loud with Ivan. 
and to make it two pronged. What is suffering for? And what is life for? Because really, maybe suffering is to get us to examine what life is really for. Maybe suffering is there as a cattle prod, right? To interrupt the comfort and call into question our perception that comfort is the best thing. Because if comfort was the best thing, man, he had it for years. And retrospectively, as he's analyzing his own history, he says out loud that he was going down, not up. It looked like he was going up. The more comfortable he got, yeah. the more down he was going. But he was going down, 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 down. And so in a real way, his little accident with his side that interrupted his perfect world order was the greatest thing that could have happened to him. The beginning of the end was a good in his life, not an evil. It only felt evil. It only felt bad. But it was necessary evil because it interrupted his, his descent his very steady, unexamined fall. Isaac um, puts it well, is Tolstoy also contrasting life and death by saying that you cannot understand one without the other, that life cannot be understood without death. Something along those lines is being suggested here that life can't be well lived except in the knowledge of death. In the knowledge of mortality. Yeah. And that suffering is an aid to that. Because suffering puts us in mind of asking the question, wait a minute, what is a good life? What's it all about? What is a good life? What's it all about? What's it for? What's it for? And whatever it's for, it's not for self-gratification. That's what, that's the gist of, of Ivan Illich's career, right? By the time we get to the last two chapters, we still haven't reached a climactic moment, although he is asking, what is it for? So we're getting somewhere. I think you could argue that, he, that if the story is uh, the man versus self-conflict about Isaac, uh, Ivan Denisovich, Ivan Illich's blindness and his lack of self-awareness, maybe that what's it for moment is could be a climactic moment. It but could, yeah, I think you're right, because it necessarily, that's the way the human brain works, right? It works on questions. And until you've asked the question, you will get no answers. Right. But once you've asked the question, then everything else is resolution, right? Necessarily comes. The mind keeps hunting for the solution to the problem (laughs) until the bitter end. Yeah. And absolutely. It's also a man versus God conflict. It's man versus self, because what he tells himself from the beginning is what? I am God. Uh, yeah. I am the center of the universe and everything happens as I say. When he gets the promotion and he moves to the city, that little bit I read about him talking to his wife and she begins to make plans and he looks at her plans and he likes her plans because they're his plans and they don't contradict his own sense of Godhood, right? She's no longer being uh, in the way of his self-concept that he's in charge of the world and it's all going to go the way he wants. That's one of the major conflicts in the story is this man versus God, man versus self and man versus God are like intricately interwoven conflicts. If you think about it, because usually the false God we worship most readily is ourselves. And when we do that, we're living in a way that's contradictory to reality. And remember Tolstoy is all about realism not only in his style, but in his subject matter. He wants to tell the truth about the way things really are. And this is how he perceives the world. What's he saying? You are not the center of the world. I am not the center of the world. You didn't make it. You didn't make yourself. And all of the things that conspire to prop up that false presupposition are not goods. They're not goods. 
And this thing that comes in that you call the great evil, the suffering, the little sufferings that started as little whispers and discontentments that he avoided and hid from. And then finally, the big suffering that they're not actually evils, but they're actually goods because they prod us to open our eyes and look at reality, call things by their real names, order our own, um, our own presuppositions in a better way and live in light of reality. So maybe you're right, Mr. A, maybe that, that is a climactic moment because it's at this point that he begins to ask the important questions. Well, if that, if the man versus self, if this is the, con- the story of Ivan Illich coming around to self-awareness, I think you're right that it would be the climactic moment. But as Isaac said most recently, and a lot of other kids have said so far, this is a man versus God conflict, maybe at the most fundamental level. And so the really his asking of the question actually does receive an answer. And it, the answer comes from God, comes from a miraculous experience that he has in the last chapter. And I think that's what Tolstoy is really driving at. So I really do think that we await the climax of this story for a moment that's going to resolve that man versus God conflict. It's kind of interesting that somebody mentioned Job earlier because he's kind of a Job figure in a way. His life is being taken from him, even as Job felt that his life was being taken from him. And he shakes his fist in God's face, just like Job did. And says, I want an accounting for this. You, de- I demand an explanation for this, right? I didn't do anything wrong, he says. And all the while Tolstoy says he's hiding from himself and he knows it, that he is responsible, that he has not lived a perfect life, right? But if it's true that the question is the beginning of the answer, we could also pre- uh, propose that a climactic moment occurs at the in the first part of chapter nine, because that's when he directs the questions in the appropriate uh, to the appropriate person. That's when he says, why have you done all this? Why have you brought me here? Why do you torment me? He's at least asking the right person the question. He's given agency to the proper one. Maybe it's the first time he's really acknowledged that he's not God. What do you think about that? I still think the the climactic moment is in the other place. If you're asking me, well, I am, I am asking you. Okay. Well then let's look at the other place. Um, He makes his uh, last confession and takes communion. And then the suffering uh, continues to work on him and produces self-reflection and maybe even some honesty and proper acknowledgement of God in chapter 11. Um, Let's see. Let's start here. Um. More terrible than his physical sufferings were his moral sufferings, and these were his chief torment. His moral sufferings consisted in the fact that looking at Garrison's sleepy, good-natured, high-cheekboned face that night, it had suddenly occurred to him, and what if my whole life, my conscious life, has indeed been not right? Finally, he stops putting that question away from him and begins to consider um, taking responsibility. It occurred to him that what had formerly appeared completely impossible to him, that he had not lived his life as he should have, might be true. It occurred to him that those barely noticeable impulses he had felt to fight against what highly placed people considered good, barely noticeable impulses, which he had immediately driven away, that they might've been the real thing. And all the rest might've been not right. His work and his living conditions and his family and these social and professional interests, all might've been not right. 
He tried to defend it all to himself, and he suddenly felt all the weakness of what he was defending, and there was nothing to defend. But if that's so, he said to himself, and I'm quitting this life with the consciousness that I've ruined everything that was given me, and it is impossible to rectify it. What then? Wow. That's quite the question there. And that, that question starts to bear on um, at the same time that his pain and suffering become acute and unbearable. I think it's interesting. That might be um, the worst moment when he finally acknowledges not only that he's dying and his pleasant life is being taken from him, but he acknowledges that maybe it wasn't as pleasant a life as he thought, that maybe he had lied to himself all along and that nothing had been right. So now it's not just that the future is being taken from him, but also his past. She, she convinces him to take communion. He takes communion and she hopes that it'll make him feel better. And to placate her, he says, yes, he does feel better, but he doesn't. And finally he says, get away from me, go away and leave me alone at the end of chapter 11. And then we get to, um, by the way, does oh, that sorry. mean that, can I ask a question about that? Does that mean that is, Col is Tolstoy saying that religion is, um, is not useful? Is he Heavens, making a hit at Christianity no. here? What, what's going on there? It's that he hasn't come to the climactic moment. Is it all so far? It's all still questions. It's all, what's it for? What's it for? What's it for? I'm a disaster. My life has been uh, badly lived. We're still awaiting the answer. Okay. So chapter 12. From that moment began a three-day ceaseless howling. One of you mentioned in the chat box a little earlier that you think that three days is really significant. The number three, why? Why did you notice that? What did you see in it? Uh, I think the earlier reference wasn't to the Trinity, but to the, the three days in the tomb. Yeah. Yeah. He's suddenly he's being conformed to the image of Christ, isn't he? That's really interesting. From that moment began a three-day ceaseless howling, which was so terrible that it was impossible to hear it without horror, even through two closed doors. The moment he answered his wife, he realized that he was lost, that there was no return, that the end had come, the final end, and his doubt was still not resolved. It still remained doubt. So now the doubt is getting, is the problem. It's not his death. His death is certain. It's not his suffering. His suffering is certain, but it's the doubt. All you've lived and lived by is a lie, a deception, concealing life and death from you. And as soon as he thought it, this is the, the last of the previous chapter, his hatred arose together with hatred, his tormenting, his tormenting physical sufferings, and with his sufferings, the consciousness of near inevitable destruction and something new set in, twisting and shooting and shouting and choking his breath. The doubt. And he howls. And this is the, the terrible strait that the suffering has driven him to. What's it for? What's it for? What's it for? Where's the climax? Well, you guys have already named it. Let's read it. For all three days in the course of which there was no time for him, he was thinking about, uh, he was thrashing about in that black sack into which an invisible, invincible force was pushing him, the black sack. He struggled as one condemned to death struggles in the executioner's hands, knowing he cannot save himself. And with every moment he felt that Despite all his efforts to struggle, he was coming closer and closer to what terrified him. He felt that his torment lay in being thrust into that black hole and still more in being unable to get into it. 
So it's not just being thrust into it, it's that he can't get into it. What kept him from getting into it was the claim that his had been a good life. What's he trying to do here? What's the black sack represent? I think it represents death and he's trying to go to his death justified. He can't do it. But you can't get in that way. And he said the thing that keeps him from, at this point, from the release of death is his conviction, his conviction that his life was a good one. This justification of his life clutched at him, would not let him move forward and tormented him most of all. That's interesting. Let's, let's think about that for a minute. He's in utter torment, physical agony and death is certain, but the thing that is the worst torment for him is none of that. It's this, this difficulties having in, in self-justification. Very much like Job, I think. Suddenly some force shoved him in the chest, in the side, choked his breath still more. He fell through the hole and there at the end of the hole, something lit up. Okay. We're seeing some light here in the middle of a very dark place. Maybe we're at the climactic moment. What was done to him was like what happens on the train when you think you're moving forward, but are moving backward and suddenly find out the real direction. Real. That word seems very significant here. So does a wound in the chest and side while we're at it. Yes, it was all not right, he said to himself. But never mind, I can. I can do right. But what is right? He asked himself and suddenly grew still. We're still having a Socratic dialogue, right? He's still watching himself think. He's finally asking the important questions. What is it for? Now, what is right? What does it mean to do right? And he suddenly grew still. This was at the end of the third day, an hour before his death. Just then the little schoolboy quietly stole into his father's room and went up to his bed. The dying man went on howling desperately and thrashing his arms about, and his hand landed on the boy's head. The boy seized it, pressed it to his lips, and wept. Just then, Ivan Ilyich fell through, saw light, and it was revealed to him that his life had not been what it ought, but that it could still be rectified. He asked himself what was right and grew still listening. Here he felt that someone was kissing his hand. He opened his eyes and looked at his son. He felt sorry for him. I'm sorry, what? This is a change. I'm sorry, what? This is the first time he's felt sorry for anyone but himself from the first page. This might be the first time he's ever seen his son. His wife came over to him. He looked at her. She was gazing at him with a despairing expression, open-mouthed and with unwiped tears on her nose and cheek. He felt sorry for her. Wow, something has changed. Yes, I'm tormenting them, he thought. They're sorry, but it will be better for them when I die. He wanted to say that, but was unable to bring it out. Anyhow, why speak? I must act, he thought. He indicated his son to his wife, with his eyes and said, take him away. Sorry for you too. He also wanted to say, forgive, but said, forego. And no longer able to correct himself, waved his hand, knowing that the one who had to would understand. And who is that? The one who had to what? Understand. And to forgive, right? Who is it that he hopes will understand and knows will? Well, his son heard him say forego and his wife heard him say forego. 
I think it's God. It is God. I think yeah. it's God he's talking about. The other translation we have is knowing that he whose understanding mattered would understand. There it is. And suddenly it became clear to him that what was tormenting him and would not be resolved and suddenly all resolved at once on two sides, on 10 sides, on all sides. He was sorry for them. He had to act so that it was not painful for them to deliver them and to deliver himself from these sufferings. How good and how simple, he thought. And the pain, he asked himself, what's become of it? Where are you, pain? How good and how simple. How good and how simple. Isn't that really similar to what he, his life was in the beginning? Yeah. It was good and simple. What did that say? Simple and ordinary mm-hmm. and terrible. Now it's simple and good. How good and how simple. And the pain, he asked himself, what's become of it? Where are you, pain? It almost sounds like death. Where is your sting? He says that two lines later. He became attentive. Yes, there it is. Well, then let there be pain. And death, where is it? He sought his old habitual fear of death and could not find it. Where was it? What death? There was no more fear because there was no more death. Uh, to go back to C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces, that voice that comes when Oral's trying to commit suicide by the stream. Remember that? The angel yeah. says, you have to die before you die. You can't get out this way. You must die before you die. This is the death before the death, right? There's no more fear before it because there's no more death. What is death then? The good kind of death. Not obliteration, but what? It's the death of self in some way. Yeah, it is. It's self-denial. It's submission. It's living for the other, right? That is submitting to God and submitting to the neighbor, considering God's desires for you and considering God's desires uh, for your neighbor, right? Loving God and loving neighbor. There's no more fear because there's no more death. Instead, death. Instead of death, there was light. So that's it, he said suddenly. What joy. That in a real sense, when he stops wrestling to justify himself and accepts the truth and repents, truly repents, that means turn around and do the right thing. He denies himself so that others can live. And in it, there's no death, but joy. There's joy. And he's, this is the answer to the question, what's it for? Do you see? For him, all this happened in an instant, and the significance of that instant never changed. For those present, his agony went on for two more hours. Something gurgled in his chest, his body kept twitching, and then the gurgling and wheezing gradually subsided. It is finished, someone said over him. You guys know that? That's an illusion. Where have we heard that before? It is finished. In Christ, Bible, Christ on the cross. It's Jesus on the cross right before he dies. He says, it is finished right before he dies. You noticed already that it's three days, right? That he's being made a kind of Christ figure. We already suggested that maybe Tolstoy is saying that he's been conformed to the image of Christ as he dies. He suffers with Christ so that he can be resurrected with Christ. This is an intensely Christian story. Uh, by the way, full of hope. It looks on the outset, on the surface, like it's just dark and horrible and how depressing. But really, this is a story about where joy comes from. Where does joy come from? Not where we think. Yes, Leo Tolstoy was absolutely a Christian. Remember I told you at the beginning of class that he wrote an essay about his faith? 
It's called What I Believe. It was a confession of Christianity in his own voice. What's it for? What's life for, according to the death of Ivan Ilyich? And what, what is, where is joy found? What does he say? It's found in God in some way. Yeah, but let's be specific. What does the story say about that? If this is the question that he's been asking, and it is, from the moment that suffering gets his attention, he asks, what's it for? What's it for? And he wrestles and wrestles and wrestles until he's there an hour before his death, wrestling still to get into that black sack that is wrestling to die and struggling with the idea that he hadn't lived right and justifying himself until finally he has this experience with his son. He opens his eyes and accidentally his hand falls on his son's head. He sees his son weeping. His son kisses his hand and he becomes aware of the other, the other, his son. And he has pity for him. He sees him and he realizes that he can do the right thing here. And what is the right thing? Well, the right thing is for him to love his neighbor. Right, Andrea, to deny the self and love the other, love the other to deny the self and love the other, to submit himself to the nature of reality, which is the same thing as submitting himself to God well, who in, created it. In right? Tolstoy's formulation, it's explicit, right? Because of all the, the Christological imagery, the thing that happens that changes his heart and his mind on this is a blow from God. And we know that because it hits him in the chest and in the side, a reference to the crucifixion, mm-hmm. right? So this is a Christian God intervening and changing his mind and heart so that he loves his neighbor. And that's what he means when he says, and he says, so that's what it is. He suddenly exclaimed aloud, what joy. And instead of death, there was light, right? The light, if we're looking for the source of light, if we're looking for any light in this story, it's in his, the answer to the question that he's been asking. So let's make sure we understand the answer to this question, because without the answer to this question that Ivan finally gets to through suffering, we got nothing but the suffering. And it looks like nihilism. It looks like the thing that he keeps saying over and over again, what's it for? What's it for? It's all meaningless. It's all meaningless. It doesn't have any meaning. Is that true? Is that what the story says? Does the story agree with Ivan midway through the story? No, life is not meaningless. It's far from meaningless. According to Tolstoy, Tolstoy says life is full of meaning. Life is full of meaning. What's it for? Well, it's for loving your neighbor. It's for coming to acknowledge God as the source of all things and as the the one in charge. Coming to acknowledge that what he creates us for is what life is really for. And that is for loving him and loving our neighbor instead of loving ourselves. Right? So this self-denial is kind of a way in to light and joy. It's a way around uh, fear, the fear of death. What he's saying is you got to die before you die. Embrace the little deaths, die to yourself and look at the other, give your life away, right? Die so other people can live. This is Christianity. And it amazingly, of course, it takes on the image of the one who it takes its name from Christ. What did he do? Unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit, right? This is about a seed trying to fall to the ground and die. And it doesn't want to die. It wants to preserve its life. But when it dies, it bears much fruit, not just for the others. It doesn't just give the others what they need. It gives him what he needs. 
he finds in it light and joy and no more fear. It is finished. Someone said over him. He heard those words and repeated them in his soul. Death is finished, he said to himself. It is no more. Wow. That's a very hopeful ending for a a work that ends with his death. What do you think he means? Death is finished. You mean, I'm dead now. Well, I'd be a little anticlimactic. Yeah, he means that the way to life is death. It's um, completely uh, counterintuitive. Death is its own destruction. Do you see Tolstoy putting in story form what Jesus said, that he who would find his life would lose it. He who would save his life will lose it. But how's it go? I'm getting it all wrong. Can you say it, Mr. A? Uh, he who would save his life would lose it, but he who would lose his life for my sake there would find is. it. He drew an air, stopped at mid-breath, stretched out, and died. I, I love the stretched out part because there it is again with the the uh, allusions to the crucifixion, all the Christological imagery. And if we look at the Christological imagery, we have to look at the entire um, idea of Christianity that Christ um, that Christianity invokes. When we look at a Christ image, we're not only seeing um, sacrificial death, but we're anticipating a, a kind of resurrection, right? So the end of the story anticipates life, not death. He finds life in the final moments of his life when he finally submits to the reality of things, admits that he didn't do everything right, and repents and lives for someone else for a minute, right? He gives up his life so that he can find it, and he does. He finds this life in those final moments, and it anticipates the greater life that he's found in coming to terms with God before he dies. This is like a a deathbed conversion is what it is. And it answers the questions, the larger questions that the story seems to be asking. It it asks the question, what is it for? What is life for? What is suffering for? And and what answer does it give? What's life for, according to to Tolstoy's story? To give away, right? To live for others and for God. Yeah, to love God and to love the neighbor as the self. It's for learning how to die, in a sense. Isn't that interesting? for learning the truth about the world, that I'm not the center of the universe, that I'm not God, but there is one, right? Okay, so what's it for? And then um, for giving a reason for suffering, what's the nature of suffering according to the story? Suffering is a good, a cattle prod, a mercy. A place for God to scream. Yeah, that screams into our ear. Ask the questions, ask the questions so that you don't squander what you have here die before you die right all right are there questions about this story we're out of time we're out of time but if you do have questions want to follow along with our reading you can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode how to eat an elephant is a part of the center for lit podcast network Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading.